The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everyone. Glad that you could join us today. You know, it's amazing. In the five years, nearly five years that we have been broadcasting Go Green Radio, the topic that we are getting ready to cover today is something that we have never covered thoroughly, and that is geothermal energy. As many of you know, I like to spend a lot of time on energy. I think that energy is at the vortex of so many of our environmental protection issues, so many of the human health aspects uh, when it comes to environmental protection issues, and so we've covered a, a great variety of topics when it comes to energy, but this particular technology is one that we haven't had the chance to cover thoroughly, and today we're going to do that. Our guest is Carl Galwell. He is the executive director of the Geothermal Energy Association. And so he's going to talk to us uh, about a, a variety of aspects about this technology. And if you've never really gotten a thorough rundown on what it is, how it works, and what the promise of geothermal energy could be for our nation's energy future, you're in the right spot because we're going to learn all those things today. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Carl. I'm so glad that you could join us. I'm glad to be here, Joe. Well, I'd love to have you start at the beginning and tell us how geothermal energy works. I mean, how is it that we access the Earth's heat and turn that into energy that we can use? Well, I th- you know, I think that's a really way, good way to start because I think it's a place where there's a lot of misunderstanding. You know, when you look outside on a nice sunny day like it's getting to be today, you can see the power of the sun. You can understand what a tremendous energy source the sun is. But people don't have the same concept about the earth. They don't realize that the center of the earth is extremely hot and that 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 heat of the earth radiates upwards and it expresses itself in areas where you've got things like volcanoes or or other other type of fractures. But really the earth itself underneath our feet, even here in Washington, D.C., 20,000 feet underneath my feet here in D.C., the the rocks of the earth are boiling hot. So it's this vast resource that we're just beginning to learn how to tap, and we use different techniques. You can use a geothermal heat pump to tap heat in the earth at six, seven feet down, or you can use a geothermal heating or or power system to tap a reservoir of steaming hot water that sort of is naturally created at 10,000 feet. And those are the, um, I mean, it's, it's really very simple. In some ways, it's one of the simplest ways to produce power because you're bringing hot water out of the earth, already steaming, running it through a turbine, and uh, creating electricity. And besides creating electricity, you know, you mentioned heat pumps. How does that work, like directly heating something from geothermal energy? Well, it, again, you're using the fact that, that you've got residual heat in the earth. When, you're, when you dr- dr- dig down... Six, seven feet, the temperature of the earth is a fairly constant temperature, let's say 50 degrees. It varies depending on where you're at. 
and you can you can run a, a, a pipe through the heat of the earth through that earth and collect the heat and use it to preheat your home when you're heating in the winter or even more effectively cool it in the summer but you're tapping that that ground loop which transfers the heat from the earth to a working fluid it's getting a little complicated here mm-hmm. uh, to produce the the heat energy in a home it's that's ironic but the same type of system is what's used in many of the power plants today mm-hmm. because one of the big revolutions in geothermal energy has been the move to a, to new technology which allows us to use what we'd call a medium temperature resource which is much more widely uh, available and we do that the same way we 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 bring up hot water from the earth that isn't quite boiling but running that through a heat exchanger with on the other side of the heat exchanger a low boiling point fluid that fluid boils and creates power that's allowed us to expand production from just a few states in the far west to today we have power projects under development in almost a third of the country but whether wow. you're talking about a heat pump that you're looking at heat at 5 feet under the ground or a geothermal power plant where you might be digging 10 feet under 10,000 feet under the ground you're still using that sort of huge resource that's there that's available and learning how to do it and, and the key is not that it's not there, it's how to do it economically, and that's mm-hmm. where we're making some real big gains. You know, in recent years, and really just the maybe the most recent two years, I would have to say, a lot of people have started to get jittery when we talk about drilling into the earth because fracking has really become in vogue, and people are kind of nervous um, when they hear about energy technologies that require us to drill into the earth, to go through aquifers and, and all of this. And, and I'd like for you to talk about the differences between the way that geothermal energy accesses the Earth's heat and the drilling that takes place there, and how is that either similar or different than what's going on with fracking for oil and, and shale gas? Well, fracking is in geothermal is really a, a more of a research technology right now in, in the industry. We're pretty much drilling into natural systems, which are you know could be at ten thousand feet, which is well below a water table, um, and bringing up hot water that you're using to run the power plant. Mm-hmm. When you're getting into what are called these, again, enhanced geothermal systems where you're learning to engineer a system, for our, our industry, um, it's really being done right now mostly as a learning and a, and a research activity. And there we have a whole series of protocols that we, the industry has been actively involved in to making sure that we don't interact with long uh, plate boundaries, which is where you would have a real earthquake problem. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the major issue with geothermal is just having done your homework right. If you do your homework right with a geothermal power plant and, you know, there's, there's no technology which is 100% free of some concern, but if you do your homework right, the geothermal power plants have shown to have the lowest emissions factors, the lowest the interaction with the environment, the smallest overall environmental footprint of any power plants out there. And, you know, you compare it to a coal plant, even with scrubbers and emission control technologies, there's going to be 24 times more carbon dioxide and, at 3,000 times nitrogen oxide being emitted by that coal plant than, than any geothermal plant. And with these new binary plants, their emissions profile, their impact profile is very small, and it comes as about as close to zero impact as you can get with, a, with any power plant. Mm-hmm. Speaking of emissions, what types of emissions are associated with geothermal energy? How do they compare with the kind of emissions that are associated, as you mentioned, coal or uh, you know some of the other uh, power sources that we use? Well, you know, in any geothermal system, you've got high temperature system. You're using what's called a flash power plant, 
that's going to have a little bit of emissions because it's using part of the geothermal fluid to actually run the power plant and then and using it to help cool the plant. Um, but it's minimal. It's, it's a fraction, again, of what you're going to find even with a natural gas plant. And most of the plants being built today are binary power plants where the, the power system is essentially in a sealed system, a closed-loop mm-hmm. system. And as I said earlier, binary power plants, which all but one of the projects built in the past year were, were binary plants, um, are effectively zero emissions because the geothermal fluid stays in the pipe, you extract mm-hmm. some heat through a heat exchanger, you put it right back in the reservoir. Mm-hmm. So there's essentially no emissions from the plants at all. Is geothermal energy considered a renewable energy or is it considered finite, much like fossil fuels? Well, I, 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 I joke to my friends in the solar industry about that because I say the, the sun will jo- will turn into a red giant and kill everything on the face of the earth before the center of the earth cools. <laughs> um, so everything has its time frame that you're looking at. But the heat of the earth is just an enormous resource. Um, the the uh, University of Utah uh, provided estimates a number, a number of years ago about how much heat equivalent. I mean, you've got magmatic systems, the crust of the earth, uh, but just in the crustal heat of the Earth, they estimate that there's 79 million billion barrels of oil equivalent of crustal heat. And wow. that's, again, being constantly radiated as the center of the Earth continues to actually, it's actually cooling, but it's going to cool over millions and millions of years. Mm-hmm. You know, I was looking at the Energy Information Administration's website. I am kind of geeky about that website. I'm on it all the time. <laughs> and I love, for those of you who want to check that out, that's www.eia.gov. And it's a treasure trove of information, data, white papers. If you are interested in energy in any way, that is a great resource. And I was looking at a map of the U.S. and where a lot of our current geothermal plants are. And it looks like a lot of the sites are kind of far away from our population centers where the most electricity is needed. And I'm wondering, how does our current transmission and distribution infrastructure impact our ability to fully utilize geothermal energy? Well, you know, I think part of that is a question of where you want to build a power plant. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in Reno, Nevada, ORMAT operates a complex of, I think it's five power plants at Steamboat which is within the city limits of Reno. Mm-hmm. And it provides the electricity, which is equivalent to what all of the households in the city need. What about the casinos? Because I'm really well, concerned about that. Casinos are a big part. Silver but, legacy, you know, Within you know? the city limits, you're right across from some shopping malls. The, yeah. the plants are there. In fact, most people don't even know what they are because they don't have cooling towers. They're very low profile. So you can be right there in the city limits. And but a lot of times you want to locate the plant in a, in a more rural area because, frankly, that's one of the issues. People ask me, what is the biggest environmental issue with geothermal? It's often land use conflicts. Mm-hmm. It's often where does somebody want to see a power plant sited? Mm-hmm. And so they, they don't want it in the, in the urban area. They want it more outside of the city where it's not going to be seen. So part of it is where the resource is, but part of it also is where you want to build a plant. I, I tell people a number of years ago, one of the prior mayors, I won't mention whom, of San Francisco got really excited because he, he had seen on a geologic map that right next to San Francisco, right on the ocean side of San Francisco, there was this gigantic red zone for geothermal. And they called us up and said, gee, could we produce power from that? And I sort of had to take a step back to explain to him that that was the San Andreas Fault 
<laughs> that in, that in, yes, there's a lot of energy there, but I don't think anyone's going to be tapping into that right now. Yeah, that might not be the best spot. <laughs> but, but, you know, in general, it's a mixture of both. The resource, we're, we're finding that the resource, particularly as we look at medium temperature resources, is very widespread. The, the um, Bureau of Mines in Nevada, you can go on their website and they've got a map of hot springs and identified geothermal sites throughout the state of Nevada. And you know, people often ask me, gee, is geothermal only in northern Nevada? Because that's where <laughs> the existing plants are. I said, if you go look at this map, frankly, you, you think the state of Nevada has a very bad case of measles. Because you'll see geothermal sites almost throughout the state. Well, you know, I'm wondering, like, you know, a lot of communities are looking at um, distributed generation and looking at putting in solar and and wind very close to the population centers. Is that going to be something that geothermal, you know, can take advantage of? Is there a role for geothermal plants in the distributed generation models? There, There really is going to be a role, and it's, it's, it's really been blossoming in the last couple of years because what has happened is um, geothermal power plants themselves were often custom-made. You build the plant for the resource. But we're beginning to see a number of manufacturers produce these small binary power units that are really almost mass-produced. Uh, you've got a company uh, in Reno, Nevada called Electrotherm. Electrotherm produces a small power unit that you could literally take and they have taken to an oil well field in Louisiana where the oil well was producing a lot of hot water, mm-hmm. stick the unit on the oil well and be able to produce the power that they need to pump all the oil up and uh, through the well system, which when you're running an oil field, your biggest energy use is running pumps. Right. But they've got a small unit that's pre-made. You've got the other companies like United Technologies, Ormat produce small units, and because these small units, and most of these run from double-digit 60 kilowatts to 250 kilowatt units, um, they can produce community power very effectively. The, the real issue with geothermal is, is it's, it's just beginning to be looked at in distributed generation. We don't have the history that wind and solar have had. Mm-hmm. But I think what I tell people is, you know, you look at that and you say, look what we've been able to do with wind and solar technologies. We've had, if, if you put the resources into it and you sustain the effort of doing the resource assessment and the technology development, I mean, we're doing marvelous things with the renewable technologies today. And geothermal may be a few years behind, but we're going to be there. So you're beginning to see places like China Hot Springs in Alaska, where Bernie Carl is powering his resort with small geothermal power units. No or the kidding. Oregon Institute of Technology, Klamath Falls, Oregon, same thing. They now have a small geothermal power unit helping provide electricity to their campus. We're beginning to see this as a new trend in the industry, and I think we'll see a lot more of it. Well, and what's really exciting about that, and we'll talk more about this after we take a quick break, but you know, as opposed to solar and wind, which, you know, as we know, are intermittent. In other words, they don't have, you know, that steady 24-7 uh, flow of, of energy coming from them because the sun's not always out and the wind doesn't always blow. Geothermal is as steady as it comes, you know, when it comes to, to power sources. I mean, as steady as, as coal, as steady as nuclear. And I think that makes it such an exciting advantage if it were able to be integrated into a distributed generation model. We've got to take a quick break but when we come back there's so much more to talk about with geothermal so don't go away for folks more go green radio right after this news opinion hear me hear me 
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Well, welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are talking geothermal energy today. And right before the break, we were talking with our guest, Carl Gawell, who's the executive director of the Geothermal Energy Association. And we were talking about communities that are beginning to look at what's called distributed generation. Now, just to back up and bring that uh, concept right down to the kitchen table, which is where I like to, to kind of uh, operate, and that is distributed generation means basically that a community is able to produce if not all, at least a significant portion of their own electricity or their own energy. And that generally has been taking the form of putting solar on people's roofs and maybe having a nearby wind farm um, to help augment the electricity that they might be getting from a large centralized power plant you know that then transmits that electricity over big power lines into their community after superstorm sandy a lot of people started thinking you know what all those power outages really stunk and if we had fewer long transmission and distribution lines and instead more centralized electricity that's right here available in our community, maybe we wouldn't see such long extended power outages that made people miserable this winter. And so, you know, a lot of communities are beginning to look at how could we do that. And before the break, we were talking about the role that geothermal energy plants, you know, that come in all shapes and sizes here, might be able to play in a model like that. And I made the comment that 
what's great about geothermal energy is it doesn't fluctuate. You know, we've talked on this show about the need for coupling solar and wind technologies with energy storage capability so that when the sun isn't out or the wind isn't blowing, we've been able to store some of that energy to use during that time frame. But on the commercial break, Carl and I were talking about how geothermal energy might be even better than a 24-7, you know, baseload capacity. Carl, expand on that thought. Tell our listeners what we were discussing. Well, what's, what's interesting about, and I want to talk, go back for a minute and talk about distributed energy, let's call it, not just power. But one of the things which has happened is over the years, people looked at geothermal power plants and said, gee, you're baseload power, which means you produce 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. But in today's world, things are changing. And what we're finding is that in areas like in California, as you bring on more renewables online, you don't just need firm power, but you need flexible power. Mm-hmm. And so one of our leading companies, Ormet Technologies, worked with the Aspen Environmental Group to look at how, to what extent can geothermal become a more flexible power technology. And they, they issued a report this last month that basically said, you know, it's really a myth that Geothermal is just baseload generation. That, and I'm looking at their report, and it says, unlike other baseload sources like coal-fired and nuclear generation, geothermal generators can ramp generation output down very quickly, and they can also resume full generation very quickly, which mm-hmm. means, to make a long story short, we like to call ourselves now firm or flexible power, what the system needs. Mm-hmm. And particularly with these binary power plants, that, that tends to be the case. So when you're looking at a community system, Often you're going to need to say, gee, what do we do about the fact that we've got a peak and we've got a valley in our power needs? Mm-hmm. Well, with a small geothermal plant, you can ramp the plant up and down to meet those needs without having to have a lot of expensive storage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there's some advantages here which are really new to the technology. But what's interesting about distributed generation, and I don't understand why the United States did this, but for years, over geothermal, we have emphasized power production over heating. There are, the, the Department of Energy did a study about 10 years ago that looked at how many communities in the western U.S. were near either known geothermal wells or, or hot spring sites, and they were able to identify over 300 communities that were, were very close to a site they could use right now to produce heating. And the value to most of these communities of providing heating is actually the economic value is actually greater than the power value. And there are people who, who are putting, the, putting these things together in new ways. There's a, 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 man, a group in the West looking at a small town in California called Canby that's looking at putting in a complex system in this very small town that would involve using geothermal resources to produce heat for a greenhouse, power for some of their agricultural applications, and essentially have a combined heat and power system that would power a whole community, not just heating and powering the homes, but the businesses that gave people jobs in that community as well. And there mm-hmm. are hundreds of places we could be doing this. The technology isn't all that um, you know, distant anymore. It's, it's, it's at hand's reach. It's really the economic incentives. Do we want to do it this way? Sometimes it's just a lot easier to go to the big utility company and say, plug me in. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, you know, and again, I think you see this with wind and solar, particularly in solar. I think you'll see this more in geothermal where people are saying, no, how about if we don't plug in? How about if we just, you know, generate our own uh, and have capture all the value we can of a distributed generation resource? Uh, mm-hmm. There are, as I said, hundreds, literally, of communities in the West that could be doing this. I think we'll see more in the future. Well, you know, even... 
even in the Midwest, I was visiting the Ohio State University campus a couple of years ago on Earth Day. I was helping to uh, kick off their Earth Week, giving some speeches and things. And they, at that time, were building a geothermal plant right in the midst of their their campus quad that would provide heating for their dorms. And I mean, so there there are a variety of ways that this technology could be implemented, and it's it's really quite exciting. How does the cost of a geothermal plant, and I know this will vary based on the size and the technology, but generally speaking, how does the cost of a geothermal plant compare to t- other types of power generation uh, plants or fields, whether it's, you know, solar field or wind field, and, and how does it, you know, if you include maintenance and upkeep, how does that cost compare to other types of power sources? Well, being a trade association, we, we try not to get into pricing and costing issues, but what we try to do is use what other people put out. Mm-hmm. And so let's, let's talk about that for a minute. The first thing about all renewables, probably all renewables except biomass, is you've got one big problem, which is we're paying for the project and not the fuel. Mm-hmm. If you build a power plant today, if you build a natural gas power plant, over the 30-year life of that power plant, two-thirds of the cost is natural gas fuel. Mm-hmm. With a geothermal plant, you're buying it all up front. You're going to pay more, but you're going to get more over the long run. And that's why most people talk about levelized cost. And when you're looking over the NIC, the levelized lifetime of the project, what does the cost look like? And I think one of the better sources, because the, the, the work they do is very transparent, every two years the California Energy Commission does, a, does a, a review of the costs of comparable technologies. They look at wind, solar, geothermal, nuclear power, coal, and they say, what is the levelized cost of this to people in California? And traditionally, and I'm looking at their latest chart, wind, geothermal, and hydropower come in at the low end and in that order. So on a levelized cost basis, we tend to be one of the better priced technologies. They're looking at something in their latest charts around 7.9 cents a kilowatt hour for, for a geothermal flash plant or 8.5 cents for a, for a um, binary power plant. But uh, compared to you, that cost doesn't mean a lot unless you look at, well, what's the alternatives? And the alternatives are, except for wind, see the California Energy Commission has us coming out as one of the best bargains in mm-hmm. the long run. But you do have to realize the trade-off in, is that you're paying for your fuel up front. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have fuel bills, and you're not going to know, well, look, at I, I was driving in this morning, and they said gas is going to be $4 a gallon. Mm. I mean, the issue in energy has always been volatility. It's mm-hmm. always been the fact that you don't know what you're going to pay five years from now. Like today, everyone's saying, gee, let's all do natural gas because natural gas is cheap. That's mm-hmm. exactly what we did in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then that turned around, and California had an energy crisis because it hadn't built alternative plants to, to really meet its needs. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to look at the longer run in energy and say with, what you get with renewables is you've got to look at their lifetime cost. And on a lifetime basis, solar, wind, geothermal really do make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're siting a, a plant, when, you, when you're looking to expand and put in new geothermal, does does this technology suffer from some of the same sort of nimbyism <laughs> that you know we've seen with so many other technologies? I mean, is this a technology that you worry about people showing up at a city council meeting, storming the castle, and saying, <laughs> "Not in my backyard"? You know, I, I, back in uh, about ten years ago, I was in California at, a, at one of their state hearings about trying to get new power plants built after their last crisis. 
Mm-hmm. And we were looking at the chart of power plants under development in the state, which, frankly, there weren't very many, but there were some of everything, some wind, solar, geothermal, gas. And we, we were able to identify that every single one of them, no matter where it was built, no matter where its technology, had somebody who was objecting to it or, or, or filing a, a complaint about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I don't, I don't want to d- diminish the NIMBY syndrome because the problem with the NIMBY syndrome is sometimes it's right. Yeah. Sometimes the power plant doesn't belong there. But I think everyone is going to have some kind of an issue, and it's always going to be a social decision. Um, we, are, we as a society have to decide what we want to do, where are we willing to accept things, because somebody's going to pay the cost. I, I happen to live in Annapolis, and I'm downwind from a, several coal plants. And I can tell you on a nice cold day where those coal plants are running flat out, you can see the uh, sort of dust that accumulates on everything uh, from, from the, from the uh, mm-hmm. fine particles, which, of course, they're not admitting. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, everybody's going to pay a price somewhere. And I think that, that properly sited geothermal plants, like I said, have a very low impact, can be almost very unobtrusive, but they're also not going to be built everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you do run into objections. Um, there's been various reviews done. There's a study done a few years ago with the Department of Energy that looked at the issues that get raised from you know, micro-seismic earthquakes to water contamination and concluded that if you build them right and you do use the technology properly, there should be no no real issue there, but you do have mm-hmm. to build them right. You do have mm-hmm. to do the work right to begin with. Uh, and the technology is at a point where we can we can build a fairly reliable uh, power project with very minimum impact, um, and we, we know how to do it. We just mm-hmm. And I think that there are in place public systems and reviews and plans to make sure that happens. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about financing geothermal plants. We'll be talking about what kinds of jobs are available, basically the economic situation around geothermal energy and bringing it to maximum capability in our country. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Tune in for an enlightening and thought-provoking program called The Child of Gulag. Our program is hosted by Dr. Yuri C. Feinberg, a political refugee and former citizen of the Soviet Union. Dr. Feinberg will add his unique perspective to issues that affect us today and will show how many of these issues are tied to the past, whether directly or indirectly. We'll also discuss future implications of these issues. The forum is open every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our topic today is geothermal energy, and our guest is Carl Gawell. He's the executive director of the Geothermal Energy Association. If you want to check out their website, Carl, give us your website so people can uh, can check it out when they would like to. Sure. On the World Wide Web, it's www.geo-energy.org. Awesome. And that's a great resource. And, of course, a lot of hyperlinks to other you know, uh, resources where you can learn more about geothermal energy. You know, uh, a couple months ago, I had the great pleasure of going back to my alma mater, University of Illinois, Oski Wow Wow, to all my, uh, all my peeps that are out there listening from the University of Illinois. And I got to address um, a group of PhD candidates. Some of them were uh, master's uh, candidates uh, or students at not just the University of Illinois, but a number of Big Ten universities. And they were all electrical engineers. And they were working on the power systems of the future. And I was giving them uh, some information about, you know, what's out there. What can they expect when they enter the job market? in terms of energy jobs and um, energy research dollars and U.S. energy policy. And it was a great exchange. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And one of the things that I told them and one of the things that I hear often when I visit a variety of different power plants is that some of the technologies that are out there um, the, the workforce that's driving those energy technologies is kind of aging out. And some of the uh, power operators that I've spoken with are a little concerned about that. And what I'd love for you to do, Carl, is talk to our young scientists, our young engineers, and, and those who might be the, the energy technicians of the future. Talk to them about jobs in geothermal. And and is the geothermal industry at all concerned about an aging workforce? Well, I think the geothermal industry is, is already undergoing a transformation. In the past 10 years, uh, I've seen uh, our meetings not only grow in terms of how many people come to them, but the number of gray-haired folks in the, in the, in the meeting room is now a distinct minority. Uh, and it's a much more diverse audience. It's a much younger audience, a much more younger community of people because we've been growing. Mm-hmm. And we've been needing people, but that's just the beginning. We're going to need a lot more. Um, unfortunately, for some people, geothermal projects employ a lot of people. I mean, again, as I mentioned earlier, you're, you're trading off capital for fuel. And part of that capital cost is the cost of starting up, exploring, designing the equipment, building the projects, building the electronic controllers. And so we have a very wide range of people, and we actually end up employing more people than a typical gas project, for example. And the range is substantial. I think probably the biggest thing for geothermal would be the subsurface sciences, geologists, geochemists. There's a whole series of fields where we are actually going to really need to move forward and not just move forward with the people we're hiring, but the technology, the science is going to be moving forward. 
this is one of the areas where there really is an investment being made by the federal government into new ways to look at subsurface geology and how to understand how to work it. It's, it's one of the, for the geologists of the world, this is one of their uh, you know, top, top potential areas. But you know, as you move the, 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 uh, the field forward, there's a wide range of both skills and employment positions that are going to be needed. I should mention, I mentioned our website before, there's a report section on it, and all the reports we put up there are, are free in PDF format. But we put out a report about a year ago called Green Jobs Through Geothermal Energy that really outlines the types of jobs involved in a geothermal project from start to finish, from you know engineers and plant managers to safety managers, rig transportation crews, uh, uh, geochemists, geophysicists, geologists. It also lays out sort of the types of jobs involved, and there's a companion document that talks about education. Mm-hmm. It talks about, well, where do you go? If I'm interested in geothermal energy, where can I go? And, and what's good about where you can go is it's very diverse. It's sort of like, I hate to say this, but it's sort of like the oil and gas industry. We have a very wide range of people, some of whom you're going to get your skills because you might go to a company with a training program. Mm-hmm. Some of the big drilling and exploration companies have their own in-house training uh, programs, even to this day. But other skills you might learn at a community college, and in other cases you might need to have a master's or a Ph.D., Mm-hmm. Um, so, in a sense, it can be a very inclusive community of people who are going to be needed to build out the geothermal energy industry as we continue to grow into the future. Well, and, you know, you, you mentioned government funding, and that is what it is. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, our budget's a disaster, and, and it's, it's hard to, to know what kind of, of public investment will you know, be available for any energy technology. It's, it's tough to say. But... I would imagine that there are a lot of aspects of geothermal energy that might entice private investors. Talk about why private investors might be interested in, in getting involved in geothermal. Well, there are different reasons that private investor may want to get involved in geothermal, one of which is it's, a, it's a still a very emerging technology. I mean, we are just beginning to learn how to do this. And so some of the companies you're going to see today are going to be the big companies of tomorrow. I think that's one of the reasons why you get companies like Google investing in geothermal and investing very much in the advanced technology areas because they want to be on the ground floor of new technologies. But in other areas, people have moved into this field. There's been a lot of interest in people who have a little bit different investment need. For example, some of the big pension funds, they really are looking for investments they can make that are going to give them a long-term stable return on their investment. And that's something a geothermal power plant really is. Once you get over the initial risk of building it, it's a very stable long-term investment. The, the, the power plants that they built at the geysers in California, they've been operating over 50 years. Mm-hmm. So you, you get that stable return. And when you look at the investment community, you've got different players. You've got the, the, the players who want to invest in new technology companies. You've got people who are looking to, to, to get long-term sustained returns. And you've got you know, di- different actors within the financial community. I think, if anything, the geothermal community right now is really at the, at the cusp where it's going to have to make that shift from, uh, and I say this globally, make the shift from moving from government support more to mainstream commercial market. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take some, some, some challenges, some challenges there. But, for example, around the world today, there's 70, over 70 countries with geothermal projects under development. Something like more than a third of the world's population lives in countries that are developing geothermal power today. 
And when you realize that that's 18, that's 18.6 gigawatts of power, that's almost $100 billion of investment. And that's mm-hmm. just what's in the pipeline today. Well, the, you world, know, you know, the world bank's not going to be able to fund all that. You're going to have right. to move commercial vendor, commercial, um, capital into this field more and more, both in the U.S. and around the world. There's a real demand for it. And in fact, if I can plug it, that's why we're holding this work, this, uh, event in New York City on April 11th. We're holding a U.S. and international geothermal finance event that's going to bring together leading U.S. companies, researchers, government agencies, the World Bank. And in fact, we were just told this morning that the ambassador from Kenya will be coming making a keynote address because Kenya has put a major effort into providing electricity to its people through expanding its geothermal potential. But we want to bring so together those different parties to, to work together to build the industry of the future. Well, you know, it's interesting. When you talk about financing these projects, there are, there's increasing pressure on banks, not just the World Bank, but I mean just even U.S. domestic banks, to really look at the liability of financing dirty energy projects. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and I think, you know, some banks are looking at, you know, tar sand technology and other, you know, technology. And, and they're wondering, what's our exposure here? You know, if we help to finance a project that ends up giving 100,000 people cancer, what is our liability there? And they're beginning to set some standards for the kind of financing that they will provide um, for greener technologies, you know, ones that are, of course, marketable. I mean, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, garage band, you know, phase energy technologies that, you know, aren't necessarily ever going to see the light of day when it comes to the market. Right. But for established technologies, what kind of advantage would you say geothermal has when it comes to uh, risk and liability for banks that are looking to help finance these projects? Well, I, th- I think when, you do, when you're talking to the banking community, the first thing it wants to know is it wants to understand all the risks. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be able to explain to them, here's how this works, and here's what the issues are. Um, when I was chairman of the Department of Commerce's Renewable Advisory Committee this past two years, we did a program in New York where we heard from some of the big banks. And I was always, uh, always surprised by my takeaway that day, which was the big banks, who we won't name their names, but you know them all. Right. One of their senior vice presidents came in and said there were two issues with renewable technologies writ large. One, were too small. And secondly, we don't explain our risks well. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we're too small? That's an interesting problem. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I also understood what he was looking at. They're looking for, I mean, they're really, look, they're watching these industries, waiting for them to really scale up mm-hmm. because they, they want to be dealing with them. And they do see them that way, that these are moving forward. They're going to finally reach a point, and they're beginning to reach that point. As I mentioned with geothermal, we're now looking at a $100 billion world market. That's getting to be the size that big companies and big financiers will finally get interested in. In the meantime, we have to reach out to the people who are there, the smaller financial groups who aren't the world multinational bank, and, and that's who you often see in the renewable space, are these sort of smaller financial groups, medium-sized banks, regional banks, who are very interested in developing things, that, especially if they can benefit their backyard. And they do look at geothermal and other renewables as really the right things to do. They, they have that positive value that, that, mm-hmm. that they don't see with some of their other investments. Did the recession impact the geothermal industry at all? I think the recession impacted us, and if, you know, this fits back with your finance discussion, too. 
how it impacted us is the market's growing slowly, and what's driving geothermal and other renewables in the West are renewable portfolio standards. Mm-hmm. And with the economy slowing down, and I think it's put a lot of pressure on the states to not push push them forward, even though we're meeting and exceeding those standards in almost every state in the West. Um, so the potential is there for renewables to really make a tremendous contribution. But we need to move those standards forward, and they need to value things properly. One of the problems geothermal has is we've got to understand that there is a value, there's a capacity value and a reliability value to a power source that can be both firm and flexible. Mm-hmm. And so valuing things right is important, but I, and I think we'll get there. There's a lot of discussion about how the states value the different renewables properly, but that's our market. Mm-hmm. If you want to build a geothermal plant, you need to have a power purchase agreement through one of the, with one of the utilities to go to a financier with, and, and those, those come through the state regulatory processes. So the states are driving the game. I know everyone looks at the federal government, and says, what's the federal government doing? But in the renewable field and in the utility field, the states are really the, the, in the driver's seat. The federal government side is providing some of the incentives they do, like with tax incentives, to help reduce the risk or perceived risk of investment. But it's the states that drive the value. And right now we're seeing that. We're seeing a renewed interest in geothermal in California and other western states. And that's where our market will be. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about public policy issues when we come back. We've got to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back, folks, so please don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, our topic today is geothermal energy. And we're really digging into how the technology works, um, what the promise of geothermal energy could be, everything from uh, large power plants, you know, centralized power plants to smaller plants that are uh, perfectly suited to a distributed generation model that communities may be looking at to provide local energy for their community's needs. Um, our guest today is Carl Gawell, who's the executive director of the Geothermal Energy Association, and we're having a great discussion. And, and you know, we really can't talk about, you know, energy technologies of any kind without getting to the point where we discuss public policy. And Carl, right before we went to break, you were talking about the role that state governments are playing um, to to bring geothermal to fruition in their local area. But let's talk about state and federal government. Generally speaking, what kind of public policy could our local, state, and federal government be putting in place right now today that would make it easier to finance new geothermal plants? Well, the, the main federal policies have been tax incentives. They've offered the production tax credit and the investment tax credit for not just renewables, but clean coal, uh, advanced nuclear power plants and others, which, you know, really buy down the cost of investment or buy down the risk of investment. Uh, the, the states are really the drivers, though, because that's where most of your power purchase decisions and utilities are regulated at the state level, not at the federal level. So there, the, the states are really going to shape, put the shape to the, to the system in terms of what they're going to buy. And in both cases, I mean, from my perspective, and of course, I obviously am with the geothermal industry, so all my prejudices, I think the real question is capturing the real values of these power sources because there are different things you want the power to do. I mean, one thing is, of course, you want reliable power. You want to be able to turn on your lights and have them go on and know mm-hmm. that your Internet's going to keep working. But you also want a system that isn't going to cause tens of thousands of people to get sick or create, you know, tremendous localized or nationalized pollution problems. And those are the things we have to begin to address even more than I think we are. I mean, I think if climate change is going to be an issue that we address as an issue as, as air pollution has been, then we need to value in the system, particularly at the state level, but also at the federal level, what's called externalities. In other words, those health and environmental values that come along with energy use because energy use is our biggest pollution source. And, That's right. we, and, and somebody's going to bear that cost one way or another. And if society can say, okay, we're going to make sure that we shape energy in a way that our kids stay healthy, I think that's the smart kind of thing to do in terms of federal and state incentives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of funny to me. I, I think if you took a poll of everyday Americans, a lot of Americans are beginning to, you know, whether they – quote unquote, believe in climate change or whether they think human beings have anything to do with it. They're they're aware that there is something awry (laughs) with the way that we're using energy and and that potentially this may not be the healthiest path to remain upon. Uh, Some Americans are full bore, you know, climate change is happening. You know, there is a human aspect to this and we've got to rein in carbon emissions. And, you know, then there are people who are, you know, all over the spectrum. However, a lot of times when we get to the point where we're dealing with public policymakers, you know, there seems to be either one end of the spectrum or the complete opposite when it comes to how much they care or how much they are willing to create public policy around climate change issues. And one of the things I wonder is if we could just, you know, it's it's a good idea for any renewable technology to talk about the impact 
that they could have on climate change and arresting carbon emissions. But sometimes I, when we get to public policymakers, I'm wondering if it isn't just enough to say, look, we're going to have to do everything we possibly can to do two things. One, stop buying foreign energy in whatever you know form that takes, oil, what have you. And two, We've got to start transitioning away from finite fossil fuels towards more infinite and renewable fuels because everybody knows, and it does not take a genius to realize that coal and oil won't last forever. There's an incredible duh factor to this, it seems to me. And I'm just wondering, do we really have to wait until Congress agrees on climate legislation in order to do what we need to do to bring renewables like geothermal to maximum capacity? Well, I, I, th- I think you're, you're, you're correct, but I also think there's a misunderstanding about what's happening right now. There seems to be this idea that, you know, renewable technologies are getting some sort of inordinate amount of support at the federal level, which, you know, at least as far as I can tell, has never really been the case. We, in the recent years, have, have become a little more popular. But, you know, the, the, when you look back at where federal incentives have gone, whether they be tax incentives or direct R&D funding, I mean, uh, most of the dollars have gone to fossil fuels and nuclear energy, and there's you know huge investments in that even today. So, I think that that when you look at the different sources, you have to, as you say, weigh in the fact that, in the long run, the advantage to developing these renewable technologies is we open the door that is wide open. Mm-hmm. That they, we're not we're not facing limitations. We're not facing other problems and that as we develop our technologies that allow us to economically tap, for example, geothermal energy, that that just, there, there's no limit to where that can mm-hmm. take us. That mm-hmm. that presents a future that we're not going to have to transition from geothermal to some other fuel. Right. But that becomes a fuel which can provide the needs that we, for our power that we have and heat and other energy needs and can do so in addition, the bonus is, can do that in a way that keeps the environment clean and healthy, not just for today but for future generations. So, uh, and I, th- I think the economics are not in- as enormous as people think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, th- I don't think that uh, we're seeing, you know, when you look at things like, remember we talked about the California Energy Commission's cost studies? Right. When you compare what does it cost to build a new power plant to a new power plant, so you're not comparing apples and oranges. A lot of people like to look at, well, what does geothermal cost today? And then they'll look at some 30-year-old gas plant or coal plant and say, look at how cheap that is. Well, it's mm-hmm. amortized. It's paid off already. Right. But when you compare for an inter- and I, you know, the, the, their charts, if you go to the California Energy Commission website and look at their comparable cost analysis to do every two years, it's a public process they go through, you're beginning to see that renewables really make economic sense as long as you look at them in terms of their lifetime cost. Don't just mm-hmm. look at first cost because, like I said, with that fossil fuel plant, most of your cost is fuel. But look at what it's going to cost you over the 20 or 30 years you're going to live with that power plant. You'll find that renewables are a good deal. Well, and again, to me, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I'm a mother of three. I plan in advance for everything. And, you know, I kind of get frustrated sometimes when, you know, folks are fighting over energy subsidies and things like that. I wonder why we can't all agree that fossil fuels are finite and at some point, we're going to have to transition. And the sooner we begin that transition to renewables and more infinite sources of energy, the cheaper it is. The longer we put it off, the more expensive it will be because we'll be in reactionary mode as the supplies of these 
fossil fuels that we know are finite begin to wane. And it's very frustrating, I think, from somebody who's got DNA that's going to be in the game for many generations to say, why would we strap future generations of Americans with the bill for something that we could have been, you know, investing in all along, knowing full well that oil and gas won't last forever and coal will not last forever? Well, I think the good news is, is that all that is happening. And I think a lot of the controversy right now about renewable energy, I think, is in part because we are succeeding. Mm-hmm. Is the investment that has been made in developing the technology for wind and solar is really paying off. I think geothermal, hydropower, and biomass are behind that, but we're, we're, we're approaching the same direction. The growth rates you're seeing in, the, uh, in these, these renewable industries and the sustained growth rates over years are really exciting. Mm-hmm. And they really say that while we're emerging technologies, we are emerging. We're starting to really make a difference. And now we have to, to really push twice as hard because I think people, some people, we won't mention who, are threatened mm-hmm. by that mm-hmm. um, because they see, hey, look, at this stuff is really becoming a reality and the potential is there for it to really become a major part of the U.S. energy market. Well, and I think that is good for all concerned, and I wish you the best of luck with your event coming up next month. Carl, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks to all of our listeners for being with us. We've come to the end of this episode, but we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week, everyone, and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.